And this is why I think if you were alive in the 1800s, Bitcoin would be so much more obvious. Because at that time, people understood the difference between money and credit, right? Uh, there's an old quote, uh, gold is money, everything else is credit. So any instrument you put on top of it that's a derivative of gold, like a banknote, that's not money, right? That's a promise to future money that I can take that banknote to the bank and exchange it for money, which is gold. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Today I am with Robert Breedlove. He is the host of the What Is Money show. He is a has been a CFO for multiple tech companies and has also been a CEO for his own company, I believe, as well as a hedge fund manager. He gets described by other people as a philosopher, and I believe he's a philosopher too. And I'd love to chat to him today about a lot of different things in terms of finance, philosophy, Bitcoin, and wherever the road takes us. So, yeah, thanks for being with me. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I was trying to think about the the different topics I want to talk about with you today, and I've got a range of different things I want to discuss, um, and possibly that'll take up more time than we have. So I think probably... Um, the, the best place to start would be where your main area of, um, of influence is, which is discussing the, the history of money, the philosophy of money, and where that comes to today. I, um, I started learning about 
money specifically about five years ago um, when I was on a, a trip overseas and I had a bit of downtime and was just trying to understand what what is this thing that we use every day. Like I was very familiar with the paper notes and the credit card, but as far as understanding where that comes from, how it's generated and I guess suppose how that whole system works. It took me a while to sort of figure out. As I sort of learned that process, it introduced me to things like Bitcoin. I, I, the reason I started learning about money actually was because of Bitcoin and I was gifted some six months prior um, to that trip and it had gone from $20 to $100 and I was very curious about what is this thing. I'd never really looked at it before and that started me on this really big process of understanding a lot of different things. Um, and I also discovered as I learned more about money, my quality of life and my approach to life changed because I was able to understand some of the systems in place and some of the rules in place that um, that govern how I live. And I'm happy to get into some examples if you'd like, but I'd really love to hear from you on how much detail you think is necessary where has money come from and where is it now? Um, and I suppose on that, where some of the um, the tools are that we can take hold of to really assist us in living a really wonderful life. Yeah, it's um, so for your audience that may not know, I'm the host of the What Is Money show. I think you mentioned that at the top. And that mm -hmm. is uh, when I tell people the title of that podcast, they typically think it's a finance podcast or investing, you know, talking about where to put your money, how to save money, mm -hmm. uh, how to achieve investment outperformance, things like that. But if you've ever listened to the show, it's it's not that at all, actually. I don't think we give any investment advice. Um, much more, as you said, focused on the history and the nature of money itself. And I found that question to be uh, quite a useful philosophical guiding light um, in many ways. You know, it's, it's a question that is quite mysterious, even among economists and historians. You know, there's a lot of arguments about the precise definition of what money is. Uh, definitions abound actually among many of my guests. We've recorded about 350 episodes, I think at this point, mm -hmm. and we started releasing compilations of past guests answering that question because there was such a wide diversity of answers. And I think it really speaks to, you know, we, we use language to deal with this infinitely fluid and complex reality that we all inhabit. Um, you know, reality is complex to say the least. And the best tool we've got for navigating that is human language and um, which is really a tool of human rationality, right? I would say the most useful tool of human rationality. And you could, I think there's a lot of parallels between money and language actually. Um, you know, I assume you did not invent the English language, uh, nor did I. You know, we we inherited this open source software, this cognitive software, if you will, and it's something that allows us to 
convert our perceptions, you know, our, our sensorial experience into conceptions, into ideas, into data packets that we can exchange with one another, you know, verbally in writing. Uh, and then it also facilitates our own internal dialogue so that we can reflect on our own past experiences, on our own conversations with others, our own thoughts. And it's this tool that lets us, I guess, get a really good grip on reality or the best grip that we can get. But there are certain words where you run into the limitations of language. And I think when you ask to define very fundamental words, like, you know, what is truth? What is freedom? What is love? What is beauty? What is justice? You quickly run into these types of scenarios that you run into with asking the question, what is money? Is that there's a lot of different answers. So there's, it's very hotly debated, which is a, you know, maybe a bit counterintuitive if you don't stop to think about it, because you would think the most fundamental things, the most fundamental conceptions that uh, are beneath everything else would be very, there'd be very strong consensus on what they are, but the opposite is actually the case, you know? Philosophers mm. have been arguing for centuries about the nature of such topics. And um, in a similar way, money, you know, it has this aspect of it that it is like a software, like a cognitive software, like language. You know, we think, you might say we think through language, right? We're using it as like a prism. You know, again, internal dialogue, verbal communication. I'm actually converting thoughts into sound waves, right? Which I'm then sending over to you and then you're decrypting in your mind because you're running the same software as me. Obviously, mm. this would be more difficult if you spoke Chinese and I spoke English. We, we couldn't uh, connect in that way. And money is something that lets us communicate in a different way. Uh, you might say that spoken language is the medium of exchange of human conception. So the ideas and concepts that we have agreed upon, we've established consensus on, uh, the language is only as useful as the consensus that you and I share on each word. Mm. So if I say a word and it invokes a certain meaning for me, you know, if I say the word money and I think medium of exchange and you hear the word money and you think unit of account or you think store value or you think government paper, then we're going to have a difficult time communicating um, and in a somewhat similar way, money lets us, you could say that money in the same way that language is a medium of exchange for human conception, we might say that money is the medium of exchange of human action. It's actually telling us about the consequences of past human actions, things that have been acts that have been performed that are useful. So if I'm a successful entrepreneur, if I'm Jeff Bezos, I've gone into the world, I've created this very useful tool and technology platform called Amazon. I've allowed people to achieve greater results with less efforts, which is to say I've economized their time. And in doing so, I've built something really valuable for them, right? I can now sit at my laptop or on my smartphone, which is even better, and just shop on the fly, right? Oh, I need to buy that toilet paper. Oh, I need to buy that, uh, you know, ink pen, whatever the thing is. And just at a, you know, 
the the swiping of a few thumbs or the pressing of a few keys i can have that thing delivered versus the old model i need to drive i need to make a list i need to periodically drive to the store i need to peruse the store i need to find all these items i have to go to the checkout counter pay come back home put them in my house whereas now you just have you know a few swipes of your thumbs and the thing is delivered to your home so people are able to make better use of their time and that is the entire purpose of human innovation, right? To create tools that give us leverage to accomplish greater results with less efforts. And so in doing that, Bezos has create he's he's rendered a useful favor to society, right? Really a lot of useful favors. He's given people a lot of their time back. And in doing so, he has earned a lot of money. He's become vastly wealthy, right? So he has accumulated a lot of this asset that he can now take back into the marketplace and use to redeem for the time and service of others, right? He can go to a restaurant or he can, in his case, he can buy a yacht, right? Which takes a lot of human time and effort and coordination and ingenuity to create. And um, so it's it's this medium that tells us, right? If in, in a world where money is functioning properly, the richest individuals are those who have contributed the most to social good. And it's not even an argument really, right? It's, it's proven in the consensual exchanges of market actors. They have willingly agreed and paid for the service. And you would only pay for the service consensually and voluntarily if it were of a benefit to you. So you've said, Mr. Bezos, this tool is useful. And I'm, I'm voting for that, the usefulness or the value of this tool by using it, by spending money on your platform. And so in this ideal world where money can only be exchanged on a consensual basis, you, you could almost say the richest individuals among us are also the most virtuous in a way, and that they're maximally contributing to the advancement of our species through the development of technologies and, uh, and innovations. Now, our money that we've had historically, though, is imperfect because money can also be stolen, right? That's not a very useful function for society. If I'm Vladimir Putin and I run a state that I can just use force to extract resources from those productive actors through taxation and inflation, I'm not adding any value to the world. I'm actually extracting value from those who have created value. So imperfect money creates a bit of a situation where we're not rewarding productive market actors. We're rewarding non-productive market actors. So you don't get as clear of a signal from imperfect money because you, you get in a situation where actually Mr. Putin and Bezos have about the same net worth roughly. Um, obviously, this depends day to day on the stock price and Vladimir Putin's net worth is uh, largely debated, right? It's not publicly disclosed, but let's say they both have around 200 billion net worth, roughly. But a Bezos has created this through rendering favors into the marketplace, where as a Putin has created this by extracting it. So I say all that to say that money, like language, gives us this signaling system. But again, instead of exchanging ideas, we're exchanging uh, favors with one another. Sorry, one second. Someone's knocking on my door. 
No, you're okay. Okay, I'm back. Um, and so when we perform actions with money, right, we might think of a certain asset or thing we want to buy in terms of its price. And the price is just the exchange ratio between any two goods. So instead of saying this house costs 11 cars or this this car is one eleventh of a house, right? We would just say this house costs $440,000, which is equal to 11 $40,000 cars, right? We get this common language of economic numeracy that lets us calculate, negotiate, and execute trades more quickly. So in this way, money itself is a tool, right? It's allowing us to perform, to attain greater results with less efforts. Rather than wrestling with all this, this complex constellation of endless exchange ratios between goods, because you can denominate anything in terms of anything else, right? You can divide lamps by houses, cars by houses, pins by fish, fish by beef, you know, instead of dealing with that infinite array of data, we just use money to compress it all into a single actionable variable called the price, right? And we can speak this language with one another. We can negotiate. It simplifies um, the complexities of human interaction. So, and also in an ideal world, money would be open source like English itself, right? It's just freely selected in the marketplace. Um, it can be modified at the will of the users, essentially. And further, ideal money is money that cannot be stolen. Because when money is cannot be stolen or is at least difficult to steal, then we're getting a better signal, right? We're, we're getting, um, not only are we creating the incentives for individuals to be productive because they can't earn money through theft, they can only earn money through productive work or innovation, but we're also getting um, this, you get this world where you're actually incentivizing productivity, right? Rather than incentivizing uh, extractive behavior, like we said with, with Mr. Putin. So it's a, it's a very vital tool for human communication, but it's communicating something different than ideas. It's communicating the consequences of actions themselves. But the actions are somewhat incentivized by the nature of the money. Because again, if money can be stolen, well, then you're going to incentivize some theft. If money cannot be stolen, then you're going to incentivize productivity. And so, you know, I hope this is not too far off the deep end, but you could look at the entire global economy as a complex adaptive system, essentially, which is this is quite pioneering in the world. You know, we, we've, we're still kind of moving out of this Newtonian uh, billiard ball universe model where we think A causes B, B causes C. And we're starting to realize that the world is really constituted more by feedback loops that, um, you know, when you look at biology, right, which is uh, really where we get the term feedback loops, A causes B, but then the B being the cause has an effect on the cause itself. So there's this interaction between A and B. Um, you might think a very simple feedback loop is like your thermostat, right? It's trying to zero in on 22 degrees Celsius or 72 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever you've set it to. 
but as the temperature in the room changes, it's actually changing how that instrument homes in on that temperature, right? So every change in temperature affects the thermostat and the thermostat actually listens to uh, the changes in temperature. So there's a feedback loop occurring between these two things. And so if we look at the entire global economy as, you know, metaphorically, we could say one organism, perhaps, right? That we're all engaged with in exchanges with one another over a very long range. Like the laptop I'm using right now to communicate with you, millions of people have gone into creating this laptop, right? In terms of the ideas that had to be discovered over time, then the raw materials that had to be extracted from all over the world. All of these, all of them had to be compiled into a single labor process and that they were assembled in the right form and then delivered to the consumer and sold at a profit. Like all of that coordination that's necessary to, to bring these modern technological miracles to our fingertips is facilitated through the language of money. And so when you look at complex adaptive systems, it turns out their internal communication networks are extremely important, right? You, you as an organism, you have your nervous system. Well, if your nervous system doesn't work, right? Or if, if your nervous system fails in your left arm, well, what happens to your left arm, right? It just, it just goes limp. It, you can't use it. You can't send signals from your brain to your left arm to, to do your bidding. And so when you could say that money is like the most vital or as vital as language, I guess that's an open debate for the complex adaptive system that is the global economy. And when it is dysfunctional, we get the coordination breaks down and we're not as able to uh, innovate. We're not as able to economize our time and we're not as able to solve problems basically with as little effort as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's a uh, kind of a (laughs) language software analogy introduction to the idea of money. But if we want to get very basic and very simple into the origins of money, I would point people towards a book written by the economist Carl Minger. He wrote a very short book. Uh, I think this is the late 1800s. I could be wrong about the year. Titled On the Origins of Money. It's written in slightly esoteric English, but very simply explains how an Austrian economic theory of how money emerges. Now, this is not something we can observe empirically. We can't go back into the past and say, you know, anthropologically say this is how money emerged. Many studies, many people have attempted to do this, but um, it, it creates, because money's been so many different things in so many different places, it creates a lot of argumentation. But Minger's theory is relatively straightforward. And he says, look, every society that's ever existed has engaged in some, for, some form of trade. That's, that's quite literally the purpose of us organizing ourselves into groups, into societies, Mm -hmm. is that we can achieve what economists call the division of labor. So if you're better at making hats and I'm better at making boots, we both win, we both benefit by you focusing on the production of hats and I focusing on the production of boots and us trading with one another. You will actually get more hats and boots per man hour, as will I, if we do that. But if we live in isolation and you have to create your own hats and boots and I have to create my own hats and boots, then we're going to get less 
bang for our buck, so to speak. It'll take more hours of effort, more energy expenditure to create the same amount of hats and boots than it would if, if we each specialized and traded with one another. So the entire global economy is this network of consensual exchanges in which people are leveraging one another's specialties to benefit from the social cooperation and economization available through the division of labor. And the internal communication system, so just like your nervous system is the internal communication system of the complex adaptive system that is your body, you could also argue like, you know, your blood flow is also one of these communication networks. There's many of them layered on top of one another, uh, but the nervous system is quite vital, right? Without that, you're not, you're not doing much, right? People that are paralyzed, for instance, they've had their nervous system severed, right? At a certain point, either below the waist or below the neck. And they're, you know, they're literally vegetative. They can't do anything. Money is serving that same function for the complex adaptive system that is the global economy. So you could say the price signals that are denominated in money, they're effectively an economic nerve signal that are coordinating the socioeconomic superorganism that is humanity, right? That we are all connected, especially today in the 21st century. As we're proving right now, you're on another side of the planet. Um, but here we are communicating face to face through a miracle of the market, which is digital technology. Mm. And so money is something extremely primary to civilization itself. You can't have civilization without functional money. And to the extent that money can be corrupted or stolen or monopolized or controlled is the same extent to which uh, the collective human nervous system is vulnerable to breakdown. And on this point, you could study any any instance of hyperinflation, hyperinflation historically. Like it, literally, the the economy grinds to a halt, cooperation grinds to a halt, trust is destroyed, and so. Minger's argument is that, okay, every society that's ever been has engaged in some form of trade because we all benefit from the division of labor. The asset which becomes most widely traded or most widely accepted in trade is money. That's it. It's the most liquid asset in any trading network. Uh, Other terms here are used like the most marketable good or the most saleable good which is to say you can sell the good onto the market with the least loss in price. It's the thing you know most people will accept. And if if you consider that um, there is this ordinal stack of things, right? There's always going to be a most tradable asset and then a second most and a third most and a fourth most and a fifth most. You might redefine money like not as a thing necessarily, but as an attribute, Everything has a moneyness to it, mm-hmm. and it, the moneyness is defined by the extent to which people will accept it in trade, not to consume it themselves, right? I don't accept gold or Bitcoin or even dollars in an exchange with the intent to eat the dollar or the gold or, or consume the Bitcoin somehow. I use it because I know other people will accept it in the future, And it's that social contract value of money that allows us to negotiate with ourselves, with with one another in real time and with ourselves across time, 
right? And that we can save money in anticipation of, of future purchases. Um, that's the real, real vital function that money serves. And it is not, I think the other thing about Minger's thesis is that money is not a government creation. You know, many of us just think, oh, well, I was born. Everyone around me has been using this paper in their pocket called money or their, you know, debit card, whatever the form may be. Government has monopolized and controlled money for a long time. The state has almost the monopoly on violence has in almost all times and all places monopolized this instrument of power, which is money itself. And so we've somewhat been conditioned to believe that the government is the the originator or the creator or the genesis of money. And it's just not true. Um, money emerges naturally as a spontaneous economic phenomenon anywhere trade occurs, and it is simply the most tradable thing. But then those that can wield force have used force to try and control money because to control money, you know, what is the old saying? Money is power. Um, and there's Lord Acton's phrase, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So anyone that's had the ability to control money has always strived to do so because it, it is the closest thing we can have to absolute power. And I think that's where we get into the corruption of money, the nature of central banking. It's like we have one organization that has arrogated itself the privilege to produce money ad infinitum at zero cost. And it, and it can spend that money as it sees fit. So it's producing money without work. Let's say this is a very key point when it comes to Bitcoin. Proof of work is necessary for money. This is what we had with gold. It's what we have with Bitcoin. It's not what we have with fiat currency. And again, this is intuitive, right? If goods, if money is the thing we use to exchange for goods and services, and all goods and services require work, require human effort to produce, doesn't it make intuitive sense that the money that's used to acquire goods and services, which require work, should also require work to produce? And if it doesn't require work to produce, as it doesn't in a fiat model, then the institution that can produce new money can effectively steal the savings from those who cannot. Mm. So money emerges simply just like language and among people that are trying to cooperate. Um, but it can also be corrupted like language and that people try to change the definitions of words um, or you know, any aspiring dictator tries to squash dissidents and free speech or control the press. Um, and similarly, you know, they want to control this other very vital information system, which is money itself. So um, that's kind of a, a wide ranging <laughs> introduction to money. And I would say, t lastly, I've really just scratched the surface saying this. It sounds like a lot. Mm. But there are many, many, many other answers to the to the question, what is money? Uh, you know, people analogize it to energy. They an analogize it to time. Again, analogizing it to power. So it's, it's something that lets us interact with these very fundamental topics in the sphere of human action uh, in a way that is distinct from natural language itself, which lets us only deal with ideas rather than actions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, one of the things you said then that I hadn't thought of before was that money is the most 
I think you said liquid asset or it's the most tradable moneyable asset and I was thinking sorry and the other thing you said as well was that it's tradable with the minimal amount of loss and I was just thinking you know if you were in a um, in a society a few thousand years ago perhaps you would have to try and trade you know five chickens for a cow but maybe that person doesn't want to accept five chickens maybe they want to accept six or seven and you can't break it down you have to you have to be willing to accept what their proposition is i suppose if you want to do the trade with money you can really bring it down to what is the value of this thing that i'm willing to pay for without having to give away 20 percent or 15 percent value when you do that trade now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor icoin technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I was also curious, maybe before we get on to, to Bitcoin as the newest, well, not newest, I suppose, but one of the most recent forms of money um, is I was wondering if you have any understanding or insight into some of the large actors at play in the global system when it comes to money. I only, in the last five years, I've learned about a lot of different um, topics like central banks. IMF, but I only learned last week about the International Bank of Settlements. Do you have any knowledge about about what they do and how they impact the global system? Because I hadn't heard of them before and I, I don't know really anything about it. Sure. So I, I just want to first echo back what you just said there that um, you identified uh, what the economists call the non coincidence of wants problem which is a problem of barter so again hats and boots you make hats i make boots well what if i don't want hats or you don't want boots or or the trade we want to execute isn't sufficiently divisible right i half a boot isn't that useful half a hat isn't that useful so to and and these this non-coincidence of wants problem can occur in three dimensions really it can occur at scale it can occur in space and it can occur in time so maybe the trade you're looking to make is just not the same scale of trade i'm looking to make so i'm looking to sell a house you're looking to buy a cup of coffee right well i don't need that much coffee for my house right it's going to take mm -hmm. a whole lot of coffee then i've got to store it and um you know there's, there's a whole host of problems related to that in terms of space, well, maybe we're selling, we're trying to exchange uh, fixed assets, right? Like pieces of land. Well, the piece of land I have, obviously it's not movable. And the piece of land you have, which is also not movable, 
if it's not in the place that I want, then you and I can't really exchange with one another, right? We have to go find someone else that has something that you want. I would have to go find some someone else that has something you want, trade my land for that thing, and then trade you for the land. So you end up in this, you have to make multiple trades to overcome the non-coincidence wants problem. Whereas with money, you would just trade for money, right? Go into dollars and come out of dollars, like very simply. And then there's also uh, time, right? That you might not want to do the trade at the same time I want to do the trade, which would also be irresolvable depending on the assets we're looking to exchange. Whereas with money, again, you have this social contract that, okay, whatever purchasing power I exchange for the money, I'm presuming that the purchasing power will at least be roughly the same when I go to exchange it in the future. Hopefully it increases if I have good money. And so the, those are the problems of barter, right? It's very, there's a there's a high degree of diseconomy related to barter and that we have to deal, I can't just trade with you directly. Or the, uh, sorry, let me be very clear on the language here because direct exchange is often called barter, right? Hats for boots, but you run into all these problems of scale and space and time. So what we can do instead is trade indirectly through money, using money as the medium of exchange. And that allows us to deal with one another directly and therefore accomplish our aims with much less effort. I don't need to go through these multiple hops of trades to execute a trade with you. We can just do one trade through money. Hmm. And so in that way, you could consider money. And again, this is where we start getting into many definitions of money. You could also define money as an instrument for expressing value across space and time at different scales. Right, So I need a way to create value in the world, economic value. I build a business, plant a garden, invent something, you know, whatever it may be. I've rendered useful favors to the market. Well, I need to capture an accounting of those favors that I've provided, the value that I've provided that is honest and integral and expected to persist into the future that I can then use to go and redeem for similar favors from others so that they can provide my food or build my house or whatever I want them to do with the money. And so again, you, you, you've touched on something useful there that I just wanted to echo back. And to speak to uh, the Bank of International Settlements, this is essentially the central bank of central banks. So to define what a central bank is, it is a legal monopoly. So by writ of legislation and under threat of force. It is an organization that has given itself the exclusive privilege to do a thing. And if anyone else, any other competitor tries to come into the marketplace and compete, that legal monopoly has the force of law and the force of state violence to shut them down. So in the U.S., we have the Federal Reserve as the central bank of the U.S., if you try to get into the dollar production business or any currency production business in the United States, you will be shut down, mm. right? It's not legal. It is illegal for you to counterfeit currency where it is perfectly legal for the, the central bank, the Fed, to counterfeit dollars by the trillion as they have done over the past three years. Mm. So a way that I've crystallized this that people have appreciated you could say quite simply that inflation, as in the, the inflation of the money supply, 
is nothing but legal counterfeiting. And counterfeiting is nothing but criminalized inflation, right? You are not allowed to expand the money supply, but the Federal Reserve is. You cannot benefit from currency counterfeiting, but the Federal Reserve has the legal privilege to do so. And so a legal monopoly is somewhat paradoxically in a way, it's legally enshrined injustice, right? There's a criminal enterprise that said, we are the currency counterfeiter, the exclusive currency counterfeiter. You are forced to use the currency via legal tender laws, via via um, capital controls, et cetera. We can censor your transactions. We can reverse them. We can confiscate your money. We can turn off your money. There was once a 500 rupee banknote in India that was turned off overnight. So mm-hmm. one day people have a bunch of savings and physical 500 rupee banknotes. They wake up the next day and the bank says, no, that's not money anymore. We've deauthorized it. So this arbit- it opens people up to very arbitrary abuses of power. And all of that is only possible because there is a legal monopoly of this uh, this legally enshrined element of organized crime, basically, that we call a legal monopoly. And essentially, the Bank of International Settlements is just the highest form of that, right? It's it's the inner... You could say that central banks are basically cartels, right? These are groups of currency counterfeiting or currency counterfeiters or currency producers that have collaborated to maintain control over currency production, And the Bank of International Settlements is the central bank of central banks. So it helps coordinate the actions of these globally distributed cartels. And um, it's a bitter pill to swallow, right? That the world is run by organized crime of the highest echelon. But, you know, I think especially anyone that's traveled internationally, it shouldn't be surprising. Mm -hmm. Um, Scams abound, right? Almost every, especially depending on what culture you're in, like some cultures have more of a scamminess than others, uh, but people are always on the take, you know, and and I don't think it should be much of a surprise that, you know, the corruption that you've seen in different industries, um, especially in inside of states and governments, should it be any surprise at all that the money is a scam. I mean, <laughs> um, there's not. Again, I don't want to burst people's bubble, but I, I think it's a useful bursting. The government's not out there looking out for your well-being. They're not looking out for. They're not some kind of moral guardians that are doing the right thing on behalf of society. They they, they peddle and sell them their image in this way, but it's just a business, right? It's just a business. It's profit driven, just like every other business in the world. But it just so happens that it's a business much more like Mr. M- Mr. Putin's, right? That's not producing anything of value. I'm picking on Putin here, but every state's the same. I'm just kind of picking on Putin because everyone knows, you know, he he has a giant empire. Um, but it's the same in the United States. It's the same everywhere in the world. Every country in the world has a central bank. I don't think there's an exception to that. Uh, I could be wrong, but please check me. And um, I, again, I just don't think when you look at human nature and our 
willingness to engage in anything that is profitable, regardless of the moral substance of that action, I don't think you should be that surprised that the money is such a big scam. And uh, at the top of that pyramid scheme, which effectively each fiat currency that is uh, promulgated by a central bank is a pyramid scheme, right? Because they can create new units of money to extract wealth from savers. So those that get the money last are getting robbed. Those that get the money first are doing the the stealing, the legal plunder, to use Bastiat's term. The Bank of International Settlements is the consortium that sits on top of that entire pyramid scheme. Um, now, inside of that, there are shareholders, right? There are shareholders that own the Federal Reserve. There are shareholders that own each central bank. Um, in, in the U.S., with the Fed, it's regional banks that own uh, most of the central bank, and then the shareholders of those regional banks indirectly own the Federal Reserve. So it's, and when you you trace this all the way up, you know, you end up at a handful of families. You know, Rothschild is probably the most widely known one. There's very few people that own most of these things, and they're basically benefiting from this global coordinated currency counterfeiting monopoly. Um, but every country has its own, right? Because no country would not want to have this source of nearly limitless revenue, right? If you could imagine that if you owned a money printing machine and you could just print new dollars, I mean, wouldn't you use that machine? Never turn it off, right? Yeah. You'd never turn it off, right? You would just constantly, you would never suffer losses in your business either. Because even if your profit and loss statement says, you know what? We created this thing for customers. We didn't do it in an economic way. Our outputs cost more than our inputs. So we're a non-profitable business. Well, in a normal world where money is not counterfeited or is not monopolized and counterfeited at scale, that business would go out of business, right? It would produce losses until the investor's capital was eaten up and then it would go bankrupt and its pieces and parts would be sold to other productive market actors that could put that capital to higher and better use. But when you have a money printing machine, you just paper over the losses, right? We call this debt monetization in the US. We call this deficit spending in the US. We have all these fancy terms, like government can do it in a different way that's somehow different than any, any other business, but it's the same thing. You're going into the market, you're rendering a service, if customers deem it, you know, not so useful, or you're doing it non-profitably, well, then you should go out of business and other businesses that are profitable, which would signal a usefulness to society or to individuals, would take its place. But when you can just print money to steal from savers to keep papering over the losses of this business, then you can maintain a loss-generating organization in perpetuity. And what do we have in the world today? What is global debt to GDP, right? It's like 350% debt to GDP. Almost all advanced economies run significant deficits and they paper over the difference through currency counterfeiting. So it's a, a bit of a bleak picture, unfortunately, but I feel very inspired to try and share the reality of this situation as I see it so that we can rectify it. And what we really need, what we've always, what the market has always tried to zero in on is a form of money that is immune to counterfeiting. 
and this is what gold was, right? Gold still to this day is that commodity that best satisfies the properties of money and has the least flexible supply. So it's the thing that's most difficult to expand the supply of arbitrarily. You could say it's the most inflation resistant commodity in the world. And that's what the free market selected as money. But due to a problem with gold, namely its physicality, it's not very useful for day-to-day transactions, right? If you want to go and buy coffee, well, you need gold dust, right? You need little specks of gold to try and buy Mm. coffee. So how are you going to keep up with gold dust, right? It's difficult. So we, we worked around this problem by centralizing the custody of gold and then abstracting it into a paper note. This is originally called, it was just a warehousing function. So we would warehouse the gold and the warehouse would issue what are called warehouse receipts that are redeemable for the gold. And then market actors are free to use those paper warehouse receipts as if they are as good as gold because indeed they were always redeemable for gold. But when you centralize that much money in one place, you also introduce the human element, right? You now have to trust the warehouse or the custodian or the bank or the central bank not to misrepresent how much gold they actually have, not to run a fractional reserve, which is a term you've probably heard in your study of banking. And that is to say that however many paper notes or liabilities are in circulation are matched by the assets in the warehouse or in the bank or in the central bank, but the incentive to overissue the liabilities, to issue additional paper, more paper than you have gold reserves uh, than, than gold you have in reserve is tremendous, right? You can actually just print power or print goods and services, right? You can print wealth effectively. And the consequences of that theft are felt in an uneven way across the economy, right? It's it's prices go up. People don't know like what, why is pri- why are prices going up? And then you couple that with this other insidious thing that the purchasing power or wealth that's being stolen through currency counterfeiting can then be used to fund pseudoscience like Keynesian economics that says, well, we need to print a little money. We need 2% inflation every year. We need 2% theft to make sure people don't save money and hoard money, right? So Mm -hmm. you, you start to, the system that is victimizing people economically then starts to condition them psychologically to accept it as if it as if it is the norm. And that's where we are today, right? We I, <laughs> Very intelligent people, people that work on Wall Street even that I've spoken with, they are fully conditioned into this paradigm that we need a little bit of inflation for the economy to function smoothly. But it's simply not the case. And it's proven by the free market selection of gold. If we needed a little bit of inflation, then why did the market try to zero in on the thing with least possible inflation? Mm. And later, you know, this, so we would say that the market has been searching for an uncounterfeitable money and gold was the best thing, the best tool we had for the job historically. Well, with Satoshi Nakamoto's invention, we have finally, for the first time, created the thing, the money that no one can counterfeit, the first fixed supply monetary technology and asset in human history. And that is the strictly finite hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin. It's money that no one can counterfeit. It cannot be monopolized. Its rules cannot be changed arbitrarily. 
regulation cannot affect its its operating parameters or its or its consensus mechanism and because it's non-physical we don't have this this need to centralize all the custody of bitcoin in one place and build a bank on top of it right it's trivial for people to self-custody their bitcoin or you can do other collaborative things like collaborative custody right you can chop a, a bitcoin private key which is just information right you think of it as like the password to your bitcoin you can chop that into pieces and share that with your circle of trust right you can give one piece to your accountant one to your lawyer one to your wife one to your brother and yourself and you need three or five keys to spend something like that so you have uncounterfeitable money that's trivial to self-custody in a way that doesn't need a traditional banking system uh mm. and the traditional banking system being what we built on top of gold so we have this very interesting technological disruptor to gold itself, a technology that we've used for thousands of years as a money and everything that's been built on top of it, including fiat currency, including the nation state, all now facing uh, an existential disruption due to a technological advance in by, through the discovery of uncounterfeitable money. Um, I also called this an for a deeper dive on this, you could read my piece, The Number Zero on Bitcoin. I analogize the invention of Bitcoin to the discovery of the number zero. That it's, and I won't get into it now, but in many ways, it's uh, the first absolute humans have created. The absolute meaning it's unchangeable, right? We can't change 21 million Bitcoin. You can't invent a new number zero, right? There's an absolute unchangeability at the heart of mathematics called zero. And when you get into the implications of zero and how much it, it made everything possible. It gave us the discovery of calculus and calculus gives us all modern science. And it's because we inserted this absolute number for no number at the heart of mathematics, a, a fixed fulcrum, right? An unshakable bedrock for the entire system made it much more useful. And I think that's what Bitcoin does for the global economy. We have a finally a, an, an unshakable economic foundation on which people are less incentivized or less capable to scam one another through currency counterfeiting because we have access and recourse to an uncounterfeitable monetary system. Mm, yeah, I I think for maybe some people who are unfamiliar, Bitcoin is just another thing that people have chosen to use to accomplish all of these things. Um, it's it's a, sometimes really hard to accept because it's not issued by a government, but historically it wasn't issued by governments anyway. So it's just another modern version of that. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. 
one of the things that when I was learning about Bitcoin at the very beginning, um, the person that I learned a, a lot of this stuff from was Andreas Antonopoulos, who's probably one of the most well-known in the space. And he talked about all of these different aspects of money that are required in order for it to be adopted by people. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that I don't remember the exact terminology. I'm sorry. I guess it's maybe fungibility um, is essentially that the the physical or not physical, but the quality of the money can also dictate how it's transacted with. Um, when I was overseas, I had I was in Nepal and I had a 10, I forget the currency, might be rupee, a 10 rupee note. And because it was a bit torn and a bit dirty, people were actually refusing to take it because they couldn't be, they couldn't trust that the next person would take it as well. And so I had to give them higher quality physical money in order for them to transact with me. And with Bitcoin, you don't have that problem. You don't have this issue where the money itself can degrade over time or um, or people would be unwilling to accept it. Maybe at the moment with people still learning about it, they don't understand it. But as more and more people become familiar with it, they will be more willing to transact with it. And you remove a lot of these problems. You remove the issue of it taking up space physically. You remove the the trust you have to rely on other people to hold it for you. Um, and that's why I believe it's a really exceptional form of money um, that achieves more than prior versions of money have. Um, and I wondered if there's anything that you could speak to about that um, and maybe help people understand who haven't really got much knowledge about Bitcoin at all, um, maybe a bit more about what it is that they're actually interacting with. Yeah, you're... you're hitting on something really i think this is one of the most important answers to the question what is money and um i guess to frame it we first need to understand that we don't actually want any particular good itself you might think you want uh, a tesla for instance you know, the physical embodiment of this vehicle that you can get into and out of, you think you want that car. I want a Tesla. People will just say this flat out, right? I want a Tesla. But behind that confession is the reality that they want specific outcomes, right? I want to be able to get from A to B quickly. I want to drive a vehicle that is electric rather than uses fossil fuels. Maybe that's an, an ethical conviction in my heart. Maybe this is a status game I'm playing in the world, right? I want people to think. It could be virtue signaling of some kind. Um, maybe I want to look cool in my friends or for my friends or for for women, right? If I'm a guy, I want to drive an expensive car. Like it's a it's a status symbol, it's an avatar for who I am. Um I want a vehicle that's gonna last a long time, right? I I I'm I'm shopping for specific outcomes rather than any specific good. So it's the properties of the thing, no matter what the thing is, right? Even if you're buying something as simple as an apple, you don't really want the apple, right? You want the nutritional value. You want the taste. You want the portability of it. Whatever it's giving you, the options that the thing gives you, that's what you're actually desiring in anything that you want. 
And when it comes to money, you know, people explain the the useful properties of money in many different frameworks. I narrow it down to five, which I adapted from Gary North. Uh, he's a recently passed Austrian economist. He has a great, he has many great books, but there's one called Honest Money, and it explores. It explains the nature of money and banking through a Christian framework, and I think it's very useful because he gets into the morality and the ethics of good money. And he narrows down the useful properties of money to five. And he says good money needs to be divisible, it needs to be durable, it needs to be recognizable, it needs to be portable, and it needs to be scarce. I won't elaborate on these because it takes a bit of time, and I've done this on several other podcasts, so you could you could check out any of those, but I will focus on recognizability because that's the one you just said about the torn note. When you had the torn banknote or the whatever, um, shredded, torn, roughed up banknote that people were hesitant to accept, that's because the recognizability property of that money was compromised, right? How can I tell? Is this a real note? Is this a counterfeit note? It's hard to tell. Maybe the uh, the security features, you know, they put little stripes and seals and holograms and all types of um, uh, features on the banknote itself that are difficult to counterfeit, right? These are anti-counterfeiting technologies. If the note is beat up and, and dilapidated, then it might be more difficult to use those features to determine the authenticity of the note. So recognizability being the property that people want to know the money is authentic and to be able to verify its authenticity. This is actually where we get the term sound money. When you would drop a gold coin from a certain height, it would make a very specific sound. And Mm. so traders would use this as a rule of thumb or a heuristic to determine the authenticity of the coin. And if it made a different sound, maybe it's lead painted gold or some other counterfeiting. And so this is a very important aspect because for the exact reason you said, if I accept this note in trade and I'm not sure about its authenticity, what when I go to spend this thing, the next trading partner is going to ask the same question. Like, so you're kind of passing on the risk to me, right? Now, with gold, there were all these techniques to do uh, what people called assaying, A-S-S-A-Y, assaying the value of the gold or the authenticity of the gold rather. You could you could perform these techniques on the gold itself to determine if it was authentic, or you could use these rules of thumb, like dropping it from a certain height, et cetera. So those, I think that's really important to understand. It's you it's not money that you want necessarily. What you really want is the purchasing power the money gives you. And the purchasing power tends to be based on the credibility of these five properties, how divisible it is, how durable it is how portable it is, how recognizable it is, and how scarce it will be, how scarce it is and will continue to be. And um, and another thing you said there, you know, money, it's in that way, it's whatever the market chooses. What is the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce asset? What is it, you know, people are trading, learning through trial and error, which is the best tool for the job? Which good best satisfies those properties or best renders those services, right? Just like I want the service of the Tesla to get me from A to B or signal status to my friends. I want the money to render these services to me. I want it to be divisible. I want it to be durable, et cetera. So 
and this is why I think if you were alive in the 1800s, Bitcoin would be so much more obvious. Because at that time, people understood the difference between money and credit, right? Uh, there's an old quote, uh, gold is money, everything else is credit. So any instrument you put on top of it that's a derivative of gold, like a banknote, that's not money, right? That's a promise to future money that I can take that banknote to the bank and exchange it for money, which is gold. And so, you know, it's it's in that in that lens, you get a couple of things. You get an understanding of why gold became money because of all the things we tried as money historically. Salt, seashell, cattle, uh, glass beads. You know, we've had all these different implementations of money across time. Through this long process of trial and error, market actors determined that monetary metals were the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable assets in the world, right? And of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, which again, as we said earlier, had the most inflation-resistant supply or the most inflexible supply, such that it would maximally maintain its purchasing power over time. It was the hardest thing. Actually, it's impossible to counterfeit. It's the hardest thing to increase the supply of. So therefore, when I invest my economic energy into it, I have the highest credibility um, promise, let's say, not necessarily promise, it's uh, expectation that I can redeem at least that much purchasing power out of it when I go to spend it later. That's what gold was. So and in Bitcoin, we basically have an invention that's perfected those properties. Bitcoin, and again, I won't go into this in detail because I've done it on other podcasts, uh, but Bitcoin is perfected. It's perfectly divisible. It's perfectly durable, perfectly portable, perfectly recognizable, which I'll speak to recognizability. If you run a full node and someone sends you Bitcoin, there's no question. Like You don't need to the node is checking the actual software, the entire database and saying, is this Bitcoin or not? And so the software is performing that function for you. There's no trust. I don't need to trust you. I'm verifying. So we have this saying in Bitcoin, don't trust verify, right? There's no interpersonal trust occurring in that exchange. We're just running the code. The math is telling me, yes, this is Bitcoin or no, this is not Bitcoin. I don't need to drop Bitcoin from a certain height and listen. Can't do that anyways. I don't need to like perform any <clears throat> assaying techniques on Bitcoin to to verify its authenticity. The software provides that function. And further, it provides this other interesting function, which we've never had in a, in a monetary technology, is that you can audit the whole thing. When you run a full node, you have Bitcoin's entire transaction history on your computer. All of Bitcoin is on your computer. And so you can use that to run an audit and check against all the other nodes in the world and say, is the Bitcoin supply still less than or equal to 21 million? So you can actually imagine like running your own banking software that you could audit the entire central banking network at the push of a button. That's what you have. And so it's a very, very, very powerful, unique tool. And then finally, Bitcoin obviously is perfectly, is perfected scarcity, right? We've, we have a fixed supply asset of 21 million. You can't have that with any physical good. It's not possible. How could we guarantee the physical supply of anything? Anyone could always invent or produce or discover more, right? In the case of gold, maybe we mine asteroids. Maybe we mine the ocean floor. 
We actually already produce gold artificially in a lab today. It can be done, but it cannot be done cost-effectively enough to compromise the store value integrity of gold, right? So say gold's trading at $2,000 an ounce. Um, I think that's roughly where it is today. I, I don't know the exact numbers on this, but to produce gold in a lab, it costs you more than that, right? Let's say it costs you $3,000 an ounce. So it, it doesn't make economic sense yet. But if it's one thing we know about being human is that we are always innovating and human ingenuity has no end. So it's not to say that at some point, we don't figure out a way to create gold at $1,000 an ounce or a penny an ounce. Who knows? And at that point, how is gold going to store value across time? It's not possible because someone will be like, oh, I can get into the gold production business for a penny an ounce. It will only be a matter of time before gold is trading at or near its production cost. Bitcoin's the only asset in human history that is protected from that potential disruption of innovation and human ingenuity. So... I guess that's it. And this is why it's such a big deal and it's hard to get your head around because you know money is something that's kind of hidden in plain sight. Uh, we've been conditioned to think it is something that it is not. And the traditional education system offers no, no education whatsoever on Austrian economics or the origins of money. I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. I learned nothing about the origins of money. I learned nothing about the nature of money. Um, you learn that government is basically God in the Keynesian economic paradigm. It can issue new currency and it can take currency out of circulation. That's the extent <laughs> to the nature, origin, and history of money that you learn, uh, at least in an American university at a master's degree level. That's all you learn. That's not the case, right? Read some Mises, read some Rothbard, read some Minger, read some Hoppe. Uh, this is the true economic science, not the, the pseudo pseudoscience we call Keynesian economics today. So that's it. You know, we've invented, you could almost say Bitcoin is the invention of a pure money, right? Even something as useful as gold still has industrial or commodity uses, right? We use gold in dentistry. We use it in computers, other things. So when you look at the, the market cap for gold, say it's 12 to $14 trillion, roughly 20% of that market cap is registered demand for gold as an industrial metal, right? For use in these industrial processes. The other 80% of gold's market cap is registered demand for gold as money. People holding it with the expectation of being able to spend it in the future at the same or higher purchasing power. Bitcoin doesn't have any industrial uses. It doesn't have any commodity. It doesn't do anything else. It's a pure money. 100% of Bitcoin's market cap is registered demand for its use as money. So I think this is why it's such a big question and this is why it's so difficult to get our head around because it is a deeply disruptive technology. And obviously <laughs> to some people, I may sound crazy. Uh, we call this the Bitcoin rabbit hole. People spend thousands of hours going into this and it, it takes you through a long gamut of different disciplines. It's very interdisciplinary, right? You get into economics and technology and physics and psychology and game theory, history of government, warfare, like it touches everything. Money touches everything. And so it's a lot to get your head around. But I think we may come to a point in history where we look back and we say, you know, we, we, we figured out the internet and we thought that was a really big deal. That was like the, you know, 
we transitioned from the industrial age into the digital age. We thought because of the internet, but I think at some point we'll look back and say, you know what? The internet, Bitcoin is the killer app of the internet. I think that's how we'll look at it at some point. Bitcoin is actually a bigger deal than the internet itself because it's so disruptive to the nature of money and money is so essential to human interaction. Well, thank you so much for explaining all of that and giving a, a really great introduction for a lot of people. I learned a lot. Um, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me, um, funnily enough, was that you said, you know, sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow. But when I, a few years ago, I my, the first ever video I watched of Jordan Peterson, the quote is stuck in my head is, in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. And sometimes you have to be able to um, consider ideas that may be a little bit bursting your bubble in order to be able to grow and understanding money has really helped me grow in a lot of different areas like you said I'm, I'm studying psychology now i'm i do a lot of thought around philosophy obviously money history um you touched on uh, the christian worldview before i've done prior studies in that and seeing how that interacts with the current approach that i have to the world and the current understanding of things is is really really helpful so thank you i um i hope you don't mind if i ask one more really quick question just before we wrap up which is what was it like to meet jordan peterson because he's a massive hero of mine and i i would love to chat to him one day but that's maybe a few years down the track yeah well for me as well actually um i started i actually discovered peterson's work through bitcoin um mm. and he's quite a hero of mine as well and i you know like many young men i think that describe peterson having an effect on their life you're going through something right you're going through whatever it is some type of trial or tribulation and uh his very frank and clear message of just telling the truth and taking as much responsibility as you can possibly take on was so useful for me like just being radically honest with people, you know, in my romantic relationships, um, seeking out to take on as much responsibility as possible rather than, you know, oh, woe is me. I have all these problems. It's, you can look at problems as opportunities, right? Every problem is an opportunity when viewed the, the, the right way uh, because every problem demands a solution. And if the solution doesn't exist, well, that's an opportunity to create the solution. So his his message was very uh, very instrumental in in my life, and I'm very grateful to him for that. And I think his message also resonates a lot with Bitcoin because, well, Bitcoin is radically truthful, right? It's it's quite literally a system that cannot does not tolerate lies or deception of any kind. Mm. It's 100% verification, zero percent trust. So you don't need to trust anyone in the Bitcoin network. Everyone verifies, right? So it's a level playing field, perfectly clear radically transparent, radically truthful. And it it incites people to take on radical responsibility because to, to, <laughs> to manage your own private keys, right? To manage all of your economic energy is, uh, is quite, quite a high level of responsibility that a lot of people probably aren't comfortable with, right? We're used to thinking, oh, you know, the bank handles it. The bank holds the money. But with that abdication of responsibility comes a lot of risk, right? Because the bank can also counterfeit your money and take your money and turn off your money and do all these other things. So I think the Bitcoin 
paradigm is deeply consistent with Peterson's message. And uh, I had him on the show. We did a live episode together in Miami. And I think meeting him is very much like listening to him. He seems to be very much the same person that you might expect him to be. Very serious. Um, very thoughtful. All right, He doesn't just give you these packaged answers, these soundbite answers that you get from a lot of people that are that are in the public spotlight. He he wrestles deeply with hard questions. And if you watch our episode together, like you see him head in hand, like trying to like work his head through some of these difficult questions I was trying to uh, work through with him. And um, yeah, I think he's a great man. And, and in general, you know, leading this return, hopefully to the traditional values of masculinity, right. That's it's so under attack in in the modern kind of wokest paradigm and um you know we didn't get into this but you know in my strong view wokeism is just a rebranded relaunch of cultural marxism uh intended at, at taking out western civilization right mm-hmm. um that's a much that's a very long conversation we do it another time but uh we to, touch yeah. on this in, in a lot of my work and i you know i think he's leading a very important charge for the fate of human civilization we need these we need to orient ourselves around these deep principles that we have spent centuries discovering, right? Chief among them, life, liberty, and property, right? Just let people be free to create things of value and keep the things they earn and trade amongst themselves. And you get peace and prosperity and innovation, all of these things that we all value, we get more of that to the degree that we honor the life, liberty, and property of one another. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a great honor to meet him and have him on the show. Uh, I'll be speaking at his event in London, uh, late October and November. And, uh, it's in London that the, uh, organization he started, which is effectively the anti world economic forum. Uh, they've called ARC the Alliance for responsible citizenship. I hope that acronym is correct. Yeah. And I'll be speaking on these, on these topics. Uh, you know, I, it's my strong view that we're not going to be able to fix these problems in the world without addressing the systemic criminality that is embedded in the monetary system itself under central banking. You know, ARC has set out some some very specific aims for itself that it wants to provide a counterforce to this move towards technocratic utopianism, right? Everyone's in their pod you'll own nothing and be happy, eat the bugs, you know, 15 minute cities, uh, uh, you know, toxic, you know, destroying masculinity, right. Trying to, trying to, uh, feminize men and all of these things. There needs to be a counter move to that. And I think arc and Jordan Peterson's work, um, is probably the, one of the greatest forces in the world for that. But Hopefully, the the message that I can bring is that, look, guys, if we're going to actually achieve what we're setting out to achieve, you've got to fix the money. And this this gets straight to the heart of a probably the most popular mantra in Bitcoin, which is fix the money, fix the world. Mm. Well, on that note, fantastic. Thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. It's really been an honor and I've, I've really admired your work for a long time. And it's it's a really great honor to chat to you. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Anytime.